providence is a funny thing. I am convinced that God has a sense of humor. A couple of weeks ago, I stood up here and bragged to you all that ever since I had started this new diet, eating healthier, living healthier, I had not been sick. So God decided it was time for me to get really, really sick. I've been sick all this week. I'm on the outer edges of it, I hope. I'm still trying to get over the cough that goes with it. And then uh, two weeks ago, I stood up here and said with some great confidence that next week we would finish the book of James. At which point Steve said, Lord willing. Turns out Lord was not willing that we finish the book of James last week because I was busy being sick. So what I've learned from this experience, once again, is something I've, I should know by now, but I keep being reminded of it, which is I'm not in control. It's not up to me what I'm going to do. I make my plans, and I do all my studying and my woodshedding, and I'm ready to get in here and go after the next passage, and I've got my notes, and I'm all set and all ready, and and then God goes, now you're going to lay down, and you're going to cough a lot, and Elder Pickett's going to go preach at GCA. Did you enjoy Elder Pickett? Wasn't it good having him here? It's nice to have a friend who is in the area who can preach, who believes what we believe and has been such a good friend to GCA. I am thankful that I was able to call him on Saturday and say, what are you doing tomorrow? Can you be at GCA? And he said, yes, I can. So I'm glad he was here. But turn to James chapter 5. Lord willing, we will finish the book of James this morning. Unless I just keel over. I may just drop dead right here. We don't know. I'm living on Tylenol and throat lozenges at this point. We're going to start reading at chapter 5, verse 1. I know where we left off. Last week we got as far as verse 12, but we're going to read the whole chapter for context, and then we'll start... By talking about verse 13 and 14, because verse 14, as I said two weeks ago, is a highly controversial verse, and we will talk about the controversy and see how much of it we can sort out. Verse 1 says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries, which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have been moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasures. Behold, the pay of the laborer who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure who have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. 
Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church, And let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's the end of the book of James. Next week we'll begin 1 Peter. Have a good morning. No, I'm tempted. We need to talk about verse 13, 14, and 15 to begin this morning because this idea, if anyone is sick, let him call for the elders. They will come and pray over him, anointing him with oil, and the prayer of faith will heal the sick. That idea has been maligned and misused in so many different ways. You're probably familiar with the name it, claim it, word of faith folks who believe that if they just have enough faith that the prayer of faith can heal the sick. Sometimes the faith healers will say that the faith that's spoken of here by James is the faith of the person who is sick rather than the person doing the praying so that they can blame the sick person if the sick person doesn't get better. They can say, well, that's your fault. You just didn't have enough faith. Or some will say it depends on the faith of the person doing the praying. That if the person praying has enough faith, that they can obligate God to heal the sick person. On the surface, it certainly seems 
and it's certainly assumed by many, that what James is saying is whoever the elders are in your church, whatever church organization you're a part of, if you just call those elders and they come and anoint with oil and pray, that God is then going to heal the sick. The problem with all of those theories is a genuinely pragmatic person will recognize that it doesn't work. And that causes some amount of frustration because James clearly says what he says. And so people go through conniptions and all kinds of theological gymnastics to try to avoid what the word says in an effort to save God's reputation and in an effort to say, well, the Bible's still true even though, pragmatically, it doesn't seem to work. So I want to offer yet another understanding of this verse that I think is the contextual and historical understanding of this verse. And then you're going to find out that, in fact, James was completely telling the truth. The word of God is not contradictory. The word of God is not untrue. I heard a message just this week that I was steered to by somebody from here at GCA that was reading ahead. And they went and listened to a message by a a well-known, very renowned preacher who also happens to be a cessationist. Do you know what that means? Cessationism is the idea that the gifts of the Spirit no longer exist in the modern-day church, that they happened during the apostolic period, but they don't happen now. And I think that his cessationism kind of drove a little bit of his interpretation of this verse. But what he came to was that James wasn't talking about someone being actually physically sick, like I've been sick all this week, like the coughing. Thank you for the example. Like the coughing and the fevers and the, you know, that kind of sick that that really what the word means is spiritually oppressed, kind of down to be spiritually under the weather, for lack of a better term. And so what James was getting at is if you call for the elders of the church, they will pray and anoint, and that is going to bolster your confidence in your faith, and so you're going to recover in some way from your spiritual malaise, but that it's not talking about actual physical sickness. That was the way that they handled this verse in order to keep God's reputation intact, because they could see as an elder of the church, they could see that they could be called and then they could do the prayer of faith and the anointing and then the person would just be refreshed spiritually while still being in whatever state of physical sickness they were in to begin with, but then it didn't contradict the verse. I don't agree with that. I think that he is talking completely and utterly about being physically sick because, as we're going to see in a moment, James uses the exact same word that Jesus uses When Jesus says, go heal the sick and raise the dead and drive out demons, same word. And so James uses the same word. I believe he's talking about physical sickness. But I also believe that when he talks about elders, that's the key word. When he talks about elders, he's not talking about every elder of every church that ever existed on planet earth, everybody who was ever ordained or ever served as an elder in any church somehow has the ability to do the anointing of oil and prayer of faith that's going to heal the sick. What I believe is, what I am convinced of from the text, 
is that James is talking about Peter, John, and James, who are referred to repeatedly as the elders, who even refer to themselves as the elders, who were told by Jesus to go out and heal the sick and raise the dead and drive out demons. And we're going to see examples this morning of them doing that very thing with complete ability given to them by the power of God through the statement of Jesus who gave them the ability to do things that not all elders in the church have the ability to do. For instance, (laughs) elders in the church across the board are not told whatever you bind will be bound in heaven and whatever you allow is going to be allowed in heaven. We're not told that. But the 12 apostles were told that. The 12 apostles had a different authority than we did. And the 12 apostles were told specifically that when they went and anointed, and prayed that their prayer of faith would heal the sick. And that absolutely happened, as we're going to see this morning. So Jesus was telling the truth, James was telling the truth, and the elders actually acted on that truth. And there's no necessity, there's no need to redefine the words of these verses in order to make them more true to the day and age in which we live. They are perfectly true within the historic context in which they were said to the people to whom it was said. Those people actually did the very things that James is talking about. So, of course, James would talk about it. But then, having said that, he then says, now you all, not the elders, not the specific elders, but now you all Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another because the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. (coughs) And so we are told collectively as the body of Christ, as the people of God, we are told to pray for each other. But then we leave the consequences to God. God might raise people up again. I've been raised up again. I I was at death's door a few days ago. Somebody asked me on the phone, can I bring you anything? And I said, a bullet in my forehead. I I mean, I I was just so very, very sick. I'm sorry. I (laughs) made somebody wince. But, I mean, I was just that sick. And here I stand again. Now, I don't credit the uh, bottles of NyQuil with raising me up again. I, I don't credit the steroid shots I got from the doctor or the cough medicine that did not work. I don't credit any of that. I credit God with raising me up. And I am thankful that there are people all over the internet, all over the planet that were praying for me, that wrote to me and said, we're praying for you. And I believe that their fervent prayers availed much and that God raised me up again. Had God not raised me up again, had the sickness kept me down, and had I ultimately died from it, I'd have been healed. That's the best healing you get. I'd have been awake and alive and in the presence of the Lord. You don't get more healed than that. Ever living, that's pretty healed. So either way, whether God lifts you up from your disease or whether he takes you home via your disease... God is still good, God is still gracious, and God is still caring and doing what is best for his people. 
The only reason that I didn't succumb this week and go home is because he, in his providence that I talked about 10 minutes ago, he still has more for me to do. My point is, pray for each other. Pray for the sick. Pray for the people who are going through difficulties and the people who are downtrodden because the God who loves them, who knows them better than you know them, the God who does everything for their good and for his glory, that God is in the enterprise of healing his people one way or the other. Keep praying. Keep coming to his throne. Keep raising up his name. Keep glorifying him. Keep telling him what a good and a gracious and a kind and a loving and a healing God he is. Because sometimes as he hears those prayers, he interacts with those people and raises up the sick. And sometimes he brings the sick home. Either way, his saints win. You get it? Either way, we don't get penalized for praying. No. The sick person gets the blessing of either being healed or going home, the person who's doing the praying gets the blessing of knowing that their prayers are heard by a sovereign God and that the fervent prayers of a righteous man avails much. So nothing that James is saying here contradicts anything else in the Bible, and there's no need for us to redefine words to try to save God's face. Believe me, God's face is fine. God's reputation is is fine. I like what Spurgeon said. He said, you don't have to defend a lion. You just open the cage and let him out. (laughs) So So now let's take a look at this stuff that I've just described. Is anyone among you suffering? That can be any form of suffering. That can be physical suffering. That can be sickness (laughs) suffering. That can be oppression. That can be any kind of social suffering. If any of you are suffering, look at the response. Let him pray. In other words, if God is absolutely sovereign, if God is completely in charge, if that's the God you're dealing with, then if you're suffering, that sovereign God knows it. If you're going through difficulty and hardship, that sovereign God who loves you more than you love yourself, who is more interested in your ultimate outcome than you are, That God who does everything for his own glory and your own good, that God is the one you should talk to about your suffering. You can talk to me. You can talk to Marilyn. You can talk to anybody in the room. You can call Karen. You can say, I am really suffering. This is really difficult. And the most they can do is say, I'll pray for you. But they don't have the ability to actually stop the suffering. If they did, I'd have called Marilyn and said, get rid of the cough. And she would have instantly done that because she loves me, I hope. She can't help me. Nobody could help. So who do I go to? I go to the God who is involved in every aspect of our lives. I go to the sovereign God. I pray. If you're suffering, pray. But then look at this. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Now, I think the first half of the verse is almost automatic for most Christians. Most Christians, when they're suffering, will pray. They don't know where else to go. They're desperate. They will go to God and they will pray their heart out. Please, God, relieve this suffering I'm going through. The problem is the second half of the verse. 
Most of us, when we're happy, when life is good, we forget to go praise God. We forget to go back and say thank you. We forget to say that was another good day. I enjoyed that thoroughly. I ate a good meal. I heard a good song. I listened to birds in the trees. I walked outside and it was sunshine galore. I just had a great day. I am cheerful. Thank God. Now look at that. When you're in trouble, when you're depressed, go to God. When you're cheerful, when you're happy, when you're well, go to God. In other words, no matter what state you're in, go to God. And God expects you to come to him when you're not doing well, when you're under some kind of oppression, when you're having some kind of disease, when it's difficult on you. He expects you to come to him. That's why he's putting you through that. God who knows you better than you know yourself knows full well that when the bluebird of happiness is on your shoulders and it's all rainbows and kumbaya, that you're not as likely to get on your knees as you are when you're really, really sick. And he knows that about you. So he will use sickness to drive you to your knees. And then James says quite wisely, but then the inverse is also true when you're happy. When it's going well, when things are good, when you are cheerful, make sure to include God. Make sure to go back to God and say, thank you. You are sovereign. You could have laid me on the ground today. You could have made me suffer today. You could have put me through pain today. And instead, you gave me a happy, cheerful day. Thank you, God. We need to remember both sides of that equation. We need to remember that God is in charge of our sickness and our joy. That he's in charge of taking things away like he did with Job. But he's in charge of giving things back like he did with Job. Both sides of that equation are true because it's the same sovereign God who's in charge of every single aspect of your life. We are prone, as I keep saying, we are prone to go to God when we're sick. Make sure you go to God when you're well. Recognize him in all aspects of your life. I think that's what James is driving at. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Verse 14, let him call for the elders of the church. So let's start there. Let's talk about the elders of the church for a moment. Acts 11, 22 to 30. You can turn there if you want. We're going to look at a few different verses. The whole point of the verses that we're going to look at is that the elders are identified. Now, if this is the way that the New Testament authors are identifying the elders... Peter, John, and James, the elders at Jerusalem, if this is the way that the New Testament authors are identifying them, then that would also be the mindset that James has. That would be the way that James is thinking when he uses the word elders, which is why he would even say, if anybody is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them. Acts 11, 22 I'm going to read till verse 30. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. So we're talking about the church at Jerusalem. I believe this is the same church that James is referring to. Let him call for the elders of the church. 
And they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine over all the land. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in the charge of Barnabas and Saul to whom? The elders. The elders. Where are the elders? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It's right in the passage. Acts 15, starting at verse 2, reading till verse 6 says, And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate among them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. So there's the apostles there in Jerusalem. There are also the elders, Peter, John, and James, who will refer to themselves as the elders. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brethren, and they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are among the Gentiles' greetings. And so the elders at Jerusalem refer to themselves as the elders. Acts 16.4 says, Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. Acts 21.18 says, And the following day Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. First Peter 5.1, Peter refers to himself as the elder. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ. Second John 1, John refers to himself as the elder. In fact, that's the proper name he gives himself. He says, the elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all those who know the truth. And Third John 1 says the same thing, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Now, with that weight of evidence throughout the Bible of Peter, John, and James being referred to as elders and referring to themselves as elders, when James says the word elders here, I believe that's who he's referring to. I don't know who else he could be referring to, given the weight of evidence. That being the case, where does he get this confidence where he says, if any is sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. 
And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Where does he get that? He's not just making it up. It's the result of his time with Jesus. Matthew 10, 8, for instance, says, Jesus commanded them, saying, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, so freely give. Okay, so they've got the command right from Jesus that they are supposed to go out and heal the sick. At that point, Jesus uses a particular word, astheneo, and that is the word that is translated sick. James picks up that exact same word and says, is anyone among you astheneo, sick? So he's talking about the same sickness that Jesus talked about. Jesus said, go out, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. If you're cleansing lepers, wouldn't that be healing a sickness? We're not just talking about a spiritual oppression here. We're not talking about giving some kind of confidence and take heart, you that are kind of spiritually oppressed. We're talking about actual diseases, actual sicknesses that are being healed miraculously, spiritually. Is any among you sick? Ask the nail. Then let him call for the elders of the church. Peter, John, and James, they're the ones who have been commanded by Jesus to go out and do this very thing, to go out and heal. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And then he used a different word, kamno, which means properly to toil. It just means to be tired, to be sickened, to be faint. And the Lord will raise him up. So I conclude from all that that James is actually saying that the elders are the ones who will pray the prayer of faith. They're the ones who will heal the sick. For instance, when Jesus saw the blind man by the pool of Bethesda, was the blind man looking for Christ? Was he busy exercising faith? He couldn't have had faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That hadn't happened yet. And he, he wasn't looking for Jesus. In fact, what he was looking for was for an angel to stir the water in the hope that he could be the first one into the water. But he said, behold, I have no man to carry me, and I'm lame. And by the time I get there, somebody else gets in there ahead of me. So he believed that's why he wasn't healed. Jesus healed him and said, take up your bed and walk. And because Jesus told him to do it, that man, that lame man, stood up, picked up his bed, and walked. And it just happened to be on the Sabbath day, which really upset all the Pharisees in the area, because the man was now working on the Sabbath, carrying his bed. And they confronted him and said, why are you carrying your bed? What are you doing? This is the Sabbath. And that was a paraphrase right there of what they said to him. And he says to them, I only know that the man who healed me said, take up your bed, walk, go. I'm, I'm doing what he said. He's got authority. Okay, where did the authority come from? It didn't come from the man who was healed. It came from the authority of the one who did the healing. Jesus, get this right, Jesus is the authority in healing. When you pray in the name of Jesus, you're praying under the authority of Jesus because he's the one that does the healing. The power to heal is not in the person, is not in the one praying, is not in the apostle, is not in the elder. That's not where the authority comes from. The authority comes from Jesus, who is the healer. Amen. 
And so the prayer of faith in Jesus, in the name of Jesus, will sometimes heal the sick because Jesus, who is the healer, has the authority to pronounce healing on them. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, so did this ever happen? Now that they've been told, go out and heal people in the name of Jesus, do we find any examples of Peter, John, and James actually going out and doing so? Well, yes, we do. Turn to Acts 3. And, of course, you knew that we did because I wouldn't bring it up if we didn't. Turn to Acts 3 for a moment. Right in verse 1 of chapter 3 of the book of Acts, we find Peter and John, two of the elders, two of the people who have been specifically told to go out and heal the sick and raise the dead. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a certain man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms from those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. Okay, so what was he asking them to do? Give me money, just like everybody else who passed. He wasn't singling them out. He wasn't saying, oh, you're the apostles that were with Jesus. Did he have any faith? Was he exercising any faith? He just wanted money. He wasn't saying, oh, you have the power to heal me. Heal me, please. He was looking for money. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. And Peter, along with John, fixed their gaze upon him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. What's he expecting? Money. He's expecting money. Please give me some money. They go, look at us. He goes, okay, I'll look at you. Give me money. Verse 6, but Peter said, I do not possess silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. Okay, where was the authority? Jesus Christ. The authority is in Christ. What were Peter and John doing? Exactly what Jesus said to do. But where did they place the authority? In Jesus. It's not us doing it. It's Jesus that's doing it. But we've been told by his authority to have the prayer of faith and that will heal the sick. So we're doing that. We are now saying to you, through the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. And with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple and beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. It's worth reading the next part, starting at verse 11. And when he was clinging to Peter and John, naturally, naturally, if Peter and John show up and you've been lame since your mother's womb and suddenly you can walk... 
You're not letting go of those guys. You're holding on to those guys for all your work. I don't care where you go. Wherever you go, I'm going with you. I'm with you now. Began clinging to Peter and John, and all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and the righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, just as your rulers also did. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. So, the point of that whole thing is Peter and John understood that it was the authority of Jesus that healed that man. Peter used that opportunity to preach Christ. It was the prayer of faith that healed the sick exactly like James described. That's where James got the idea. Look over at Acts 9. Let's do that. Turn over to Acts 9 long as you're in Acts 3. And we will start at 32. Verse 32, now it came about that as Peter was traveling through all those parts, that he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And immediately he arose. Okay, who did the prayer of faith? Peter. Peter's the one who did this. Had Peter not come pray the prayer of faith, Ananias would have still been laying in his bed. But not finished yet, at verse 35 we read, And all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now in Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it came about at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, entreating him, do not delay, come to us. What did they do? 
exactly what James said. If any is sick among you, send for the elders. And that's what they did. They sent to Joppa to the elder and said, you come. They didn't say, there's some local guy who's probably an ordained elder somewhere. Find him. No, get the elders because they're the ones who have the reputation. They're the ones who have the command. They're the ones who have the authority. They're the ones who can actually pray the prayer of faith and heal the sick. So she fell sick and she died. They washed her body. And since Lydda was close to Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, entreating him, do not delay, but come to us. And Peter arose and went to them. And when he had come, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorca used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. What's that about? The prayer of faith. Oh, by the way, this is a really good example because how much faith was Dorcas exhibiting at this moment? None. She's got nothing going. But is she going to be healed? Yeah, she can rise from the dead. Why? Because Peter, the elder, prayed the prayer of faith. Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his right hand and raised her up. And calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known all over Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And it came about that he stayed many days in Joppa with a certain tanner, Simon. Okay, so again, these examples just keep coming. The examples are consistent with what James has said. If any is sick among you, call for the elders. The elders specifically are the ones who have been told by Jesus that they are to go out and heal the sick and raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, the very things that we've seen them doing. Those particular people, if they come and do the prayer of faith in the authority of Jesus Christ, then James can say confidently they will be healed because that's what he's seen consistently. That's what he's experienced consistently is that the healing of Christ comes through the prayer of faith from the elders. So what James has said is completely consistent with everything else we read in the New Testament. You don't have to redefine any words. You don't have to redefine any concepts. You can allow it to just say what it says. The Bible is consistent with itself. And if you just let it make its own argument, it satisfies itself. That's all I'm getting at. Yes, ma'am. What's the prayer of faith? Is it just that they have a lot of faith or is it certain words they use? We are not told a particular formula that we would call the prayer of faith. Otherwise, somebody would turn it into a book like the prayer of Jabez and become a millionaire off it. What we're told about the prayer of faith is just that it is a prayer to Christ in faith that Christ is the authority who can heal. Okay, I just didn't know. Right, right. No, that's, that's a really good question. I have used the prayer of faith as a phrase several times. And I don't want you to think it's a technical term as if it's some particular prayer that always gets answered. Yeah. So back to the book of James. We're nearly done. Does that help with verse 13, 14, and 15? Yes. We understand that James isn't saying anything other than exactly what Jesus told him and what the disciples did and who the elders were. Yes, ma'am. Are there different 
No, it's Presbyteros. Because in the Old Testament, you know, there were elders. Yeah, right. 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 So I just don't know how you know which elder you're talking about, except for context. Because of context. That's exactly right. Because of context. You're exactly right. Within the community of Israel, there were the folks who were referred to as elders simply because they'd been around a long time. And so they were the leaders within Israel. They knew the law. They knew the way that the Israelites were supposed to conduct themselves, and they were referred to as the elders, absolutely. And so naturally, the early church, which is an extension of Judaism, the early church then would have elders, because that's the way they're organized. That's the way that they have leadership. But because of the context of James in particular writing these words, because he and John and James specifically are referred to as the elders and they refer to themselves as the elders, I'm convinced that when James writes, call for the elders, that's who he's talking about, those particular elders. But that does not negate the idea that there were elders set up in every city. Paul is very specific about the qualifications to be an elder. He tells Timothy and Titus, what the qualifications are for elders and deacons within the church. God has not left his church without appropriate leadership. But what I am getting at is that that passage from James has been misused so many ways to demonstrate that God's word is not true because people will then go call their elder when they're sick. I'm the elder at GCA. And they would call me if I come and pray over people, which I do, they're not automatically going to get healed. I understand that the authority is in Christ. He may heal them. He may not. The reason I pray over them isn't because of the prayer prayed by elders. It's because of the command to pray for one another. And so I go pray, believing that the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. But the end result of the prayer is completely up to sovereign God. And so people have said, look, you can call for the elders of your church. They will come anoint and pray. And then people don't get healed. So James lied. That's an abuse of scripture. So what I'm trying to demonstrate is that there is nothing inconsistent about what James said. Within the historic context... And within the biblical context in which James uses the word elders, those elders actually did go out and pray the prayer of faith. And people did get healed. People were even raised from the dead. So he's telling the truth. What has happened is 2,000 years have gone by and we've lost the sense of what James has said so that we try to put it in a 21st century Christian mindset And in the modern day church, we think those elders ought to be able to heal people. And when they can't, people question whether the Bible's true. I'm defending the veracity of the Bible. Make sense? Okay. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, says verse 15. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. I find that fascinating. I can only put it within the mindset, within the framework of, well, if Christ has 
healed you, then Christ, by his spirit, is interacting with you. He intends to save you. That's the only way I can see that. He will forgive your sins. He is your savior. He did die for you, and your sins will be forgiven if Christ, in fact, saves you. If you called for the elders and the prayer of faith goes out and the anointing with the oil and then you're healed, Christ is also forgiving your sins. That seems to be the way that James means it because he just kind of tacks it on to the end of that, almost like an afterthought. And, and I want more explanation from James, but he doesn't give us that. But therefore, verse 16, the therefore means everything I've just said. Considering everything we've just said... Well, then do this. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. I think that's because Christ has forgiven our sins. And so we confess. That same word can be confess or profess. It means just to speak to each other and admit our sinfulness. And if we sin against another one, to admit that we've sinned against them. Not to try to cover it up, not to try to act like it didn't really happen, but to go back to the one that we offended and say, I've offended you, I've sinned against you, and I confess that I've sinned. So you confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. That's not specific to the elders. That's everybody. Whoever you are, pray for one another. It's why I admonish you on a regular basis, pray for each other. Think about each other. Pray for the sick. Pray for the folks who are oppressed. Pray with the people that are happy. Pray with the joyous people. Thank God in all instances. But pray for one another so that, look at the word, you may be healed. Okay, now I have to ask the tough question again. Who have we agreed is the authority where healing is concerned? Christ. Okay. So if you have people praying for you and you get healed, who healed you? Christ. If you have people praying for you and you don't get healed, whose decision was that? Still Christ's decision. It's still in his hands. Since everybody eventually gets sick and dies, we know that you don't get healed from every single disease. I know there are folk out there advancing a theology that says that Jesus wants you healed from every sickness you ever have, but you don't find that in the Bible. You find people like when Epaphroditus came to Paul, he had a disease that was nigh on to death, but then he was healed. And Paul says, I thank God, he healed him. So people get sick, And people die, all people die. Not all sicknesses get healed. But any healing that happens, that's Christ that heals them. And anybody that doesn't get healed, that's Christ who knows in his own sovereignty what he's doing and why he didn't heal them. He knows what he has planned for them. He knows what the divine plan is, the stuff that we don't know, the stuff we don't understand. He knows like the back of his hand. And he understands when it's time to heal and when it's time to not. And when it's time to not, that's a terrible sentence. (laughs) But he understands, he knows those things, and that will give you comfort during your sickness. There's a tendency that we have when we're sick. I'm certainly guilty of this. There's a tendency to want to tell people, 
You ought to tell somebody, I am so sick. People on the internet can't see me holding a fake phone to my ear when I do this. I am so sick. You want sympathy. You want empathy. You want somebody to go, you poor thing. You're so sick. I, <coughs> can't you hear me? I'm so sick. See? 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 I'm so sick. Well, Jesus knows. Jesus empathizes. He understands he's in charge of it. He could remove that sickness instantly, the same way he could raise the dead, the same way that he could get rid of a leprosy, the same way that he can do any miraculous thing. He can get rid of that sickness anytime he wants. If he doesn't do it, it's because he doesn't want to right now because he has some other plan in mind. He has some other thing he's either teaching you or he's in the process of getting you home, which is the ultimate promise. Either way, he's in charge, and that's comforting. In the midst of my sickness, it was good to know that he knew and that he cared and that he was either going to raise me up or take me home. I was all for plan B. (laughs) Therefore, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So that should inspire you to pray. Pray fervently. Pray to your father. Pray knowing that he cares and he understands and that he may just be waiting in the divine. I keep trying to understand the the vastness and the interconnecting web of things that happen on planet Earth to try to get some comprehension of the mind of God that Jeff talked about this morning again. It just may be that he has made somebody sick so that he can teach somebody else how to pray fervently. You may be sick so that somebody else is being saved. You may be sick because in the divine plan of God, he who knows what he's doing, who is constantly interconnecting all the events of planet Earth in order to bring his elect to his own glory, he may be working in somebody else and you need to be sick in order for that to happen. You don't know. He knows. And if he knows, then we have to trust that he has our best interest at heart, even when we're terribly sick. Because the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Then he gives the example that reaches all the way back to 1 Kings 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. We're not going to go back and read it because time's growing short this morning, much to my surprise. I didn't know if I'd make it this far, so I'm, I'm happy. And right now, I feel pretty well. And I might not stop talking, because the minute I do, I'm going to get sick again almost instantly. And I'm going back to bed. But right now, I feel pretty good. You know the story of Elijah praying that it wouldn't rain. Elijah was in a desert, and he prayed to his own hurt. But God's word said that if they worshipped idols, he would withhold the rain. They were worshipping idols and it was still raining. 
and he cared about God's word so much that Elijah prayed to God that God would do what God said he was going to do withhold the rain even to his own hurt three and a half years it didn't rain and then he was told it's going to rain and, and he ends up telling Ahab get ready there's going to be a deluge there's been no rain for three and a half years and he's predicting flood in fact he says get in the chariot and go now because you want to get ahead of the rain you, you got to go and he went up and he prayed again earnestly the same way that he prayed that it wouldn't rain so that God's honor would be recognized throughout the land the same way that he wanted God's word to come true the same way that he wanted God's word to be more true than his own circumstances his own hurt he prayed that God would withhold the rain and then he went back and he prayed again and he sent his servant and said are there any clouds yet there's nothing clear sky and he's back there praying and finally the the servant comes to him and says, I see a cloud in the distance about the size of a man's hand. He says, that's it. Flood's coming. He had that much confidence in God. Now, James's point of bringing that story up is to say, Elijah's just like you and me. He's just a man of like nature as you and me. He didn't have some different nature than us. He was flesh and blood. He had the same problems and temptations and difficulties in life that we have. And he's a man like us, and yet he prayed, and God withheld the rain for three and a half years. There's an effective prayer. That's James's point. And if he could affect all of Israel and a drought for three and a half years by his prayer, think what your prayer could do. Go and pray. Don't ever think there's no reason to pray. Don't ever think, I, I can't go to God with this. I can't pray about this. The fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Two more verses, and that's the end of the letter. Now he's just sort of wrapping up things, and he says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. All I think we need to gather from that is, if you see a brother who's in error, and boy, I wish the internet would learn this. If you see a brother who's in error, well, then you go to him in the spirit of meekness. You go to him in the spirit of kindness and you correct him. And if you correct that error, then you've returned that man to the faith and you've covered a multitude of sins. And with that, James's letter ends. There's no bye-bye, see you later. Love you, mean it, James. The letter just ends right there. Now, while we're in this mindset, while we understand this Judaic mindset of the first century church, I do think it's a good time to go and look at the Petrine epistles. So we're going to go look at First and Second Peter next. I've gotten plenty of email that says, Peter, nobody's voted for anything else. All the votes have been for Peter. So for some of the men who have been in men's group, some of it will be familiar. You had your hand up. Well, 
Thy will be done. Absolutely. That is a, we are praying for someone to be healed. Yeah. It still has to be healed. That's essential to the prayer of faith, isn't it? Thy will be done. The ultimate example of that is Jesus in Gethsemane mm-hmm. saying that to his father. Your will, not mine. Mm-hmm. So. That's exactly right. Anything else? Yes, sir. If God was not sovereign, the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane would have been superfluous. If God was not sovereign, all prayer would be superfluous. Anything else? Did you enjoy the book of James? Yes. Did it help you kind of clear some stuff up? Okay, good. Then it was well worth doing. Say goodbye to the internet, folks. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.